we did a study where we were able to really look at the percentage of plate waste before and after the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, because we were in the middle of collecting data for really a separate study at NI, for NIH, but we found that there was not an increase in the percentage being thrown away. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness Membership Director Jake Ferreira. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm Rich Gross, your host. With me today is Jake Ferreira, who's the Director of Membership for Mission Readiness. Jake, welcome. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. Now it's good to have you. You found today's guest who's fascinating and does some amazing policy and research work uh, on food, on issues of obesity and so forth. Tell us a little bit about Dr. Marlene Schwartz and how you found her. Yes, sir. So working in this space for a while now, you have the privilege of crossing paths with some extraordinary leaders. Oftentimes they're behind the scenes and work in universities or research centers and Dr. Schwartz is one of those amazing people, and she's at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, and she's also a professor, and they're based at the University of Connecticut. So knowing the work that we do and the work that she and her team accomplishes, thought it would be a great opportunity to have her on the podcast, sir. Oh, it sounds like the perfect guest. Well, let's, uh, without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Schwartz of the Rudd Center. Well, my guest today on the Mission Readiness Podcast is Dr. Marlene Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at the University of Connecticut. The center's mission is to promote solutions to childhood obesity, poor diet, and weight bias through research and policy. Prior to joining the Rudd Center, Dr. Schultz served as co-director of the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders. She has collaborated with the Connecticut State Department of Education to evaluate nutrition and physical activity policies in schools and preschools, and she's also served on the board of directors of the Connecticut Food Bank. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, we're, we're so happy you joined us. Well, as I mentioned, the Rudd Center promotes solutions to childhood obesity, poor diet, and weight bias through research and policy. For those who may not be familiar with the center, could you please share details about your work, including some of the areas in which you and your team focus your research? Sure. So I think that um, it really goes back to my work as a clinical psychologist. When I first finished my training, I treated eating disorders and obesity for you know, children, adolescents, and adults. And it was trying to treat childhood obesity, honestly, and seeing how incredibly difficult it was and feeling like you could try to work with a child, work with a family on improving nutrition and physical activity, but essentially they were going out into this environment that was sort of undoing everything that we were trying to accomplish. And so I decided to really shift my focus and instead look at what are the policies that shape our environment? What is determining the food that's in schools, childcare centers, et cetera, 
that really um, could be improved so that families don't have to work so hard in order to raise healthy children. So that was really the idea behind the Red Center when we started and Kelly Brownell um, was the first director of the Red Center when we were at Yale. And we've really continued that mission to do research that will inform policies that will essentially make the environment healthier for everyone. Well, it seems like there's a significant overlap between the Rudd Center's areas of focus and the advocacy er efforts of mission readiness, in particular, early care and education, food policy, food security, schools. You know, often when we discuss early childhood care and education, we tend to focus on the importance of early brain development or child care issues. We don't seem to talk as much about what we feed kids in early care and education settings. How do early childhood care and education programs play an important role in shaping kids' food preferences and eating behaviors? So I think that early childcare um, and education centers are incredibly important. Um, one reason is just because so many American children spend many hours a week in those settings. And so if you can make an improvement in the food that's being served there and the opportunities for physical activity, you can really affect a lot of children. We started doing research um, in that setting quite a number of years ago. And one of the things that we were really motivated by is the research showing that kids need to try foods multiple times before they like them, especially those vegetables that might not taste, you know, as delicious the very first time they try them. And we did a study in a childcare center where we introduced some novel vegetables to the kids. And one of the findings was that the best predictor of how much a child ate of the vegetable was how much the other kids at their table were eating. So it really sort of drove home the idea to me that number one, you know, particularly centers that provide the meals, it's a great opportunity to introduce kids to all kinds of, you know, healthy foods. And when they watch their peers eat those foods, that can be very powerful as well. So I think it's a perfect setting. It's also a great setting to increase physical activity, to have opportunities for kids to spend as much time outside as they can, and to really learn a lot of those, you know, motor skills. And again, having their peers around them, I think really helps with that. So we've, we've continued to sort of study, particularly the child and adult care food program, which is the federal food program that, that regulates the, the meals that are served in the childcare setting and really have promoted having strong standards there and making sure that those standards are getting implemented. Yeah, I suspect that adults may be the same way when they see other people around them eating healthier or maybe eating less healthy. Uh, so that, that would be interesting. You've also, the center has conducted some innovative work on measuring food environments and the role they play in community health. Could you discuss maybe the findings of that research that focused on the relationship between neighborhoods with limited access to health food and how that affected obesity? Sure. So, you know, there, there are a couple of terms that have sort of come into our popular conversations about food environments. And I think one of the first one was food desert and this idea of a food environment where you just didn't have access to food. And there's been sort of a second generation, I think, of the research and the thinking along those lines. And the term, one of the terms you hear now is food swamp. So it's not that there isn't food, it's that the food that's there is, you know, sort of fast food, convenience store food, snack foods, not the sorts of things that, you know, the dietary guidelines would tell us we should be eating more of. 
And one of my colleagues, Dr. Kristen Cooksey Stowers, actually for her dissertation, looked nationally at food swamps and was able to operationalize those and obesity rates and did find a relationship that it actually was a stronger relationship between food swamp, living in a food swamp and the risk of obesity than living in a food desert. And so it really implies that, you know, it's not just about making sure there's food at all, but making sure that the quality of the food is good. And a recent study that we did that kind of showed the complicated interaction, I think, between the food environment and communities was a countywide campaign um, we helped evaluate that was being done in Maryland, where they were trying to decrease sugary drink consumption. And what we were able to do is we had assessed adolescent consumption of sugary drinks over a number of years of the campaign. And we looked at one of the key variables is um, race and ethnicity has been shown to actually have a significant predictive value in terms of predicting how much sugary drinks um, a child is consuming. And we found this really interesting interaction where the basically all of the students showed improvement over time, but there was this sort of race ethnicity finding with both African-American and Latino kids showing higher rates of consumption, even though they were going down, they were still higher. But if they lived in neighborhoods where there were, where there were a lot of fast food restaurants and convenience stores, it really sort of made it less effective. So that was sort of a combination of factors that I think shows one, how complicated the issue is, but also that, you know, you can do a lot of education, but if the environment isn't supporting what you're teaching, it's really hard for kids to make healthier choices. Wow, that's important. And, and clearly the research shows that healthy kids learn better. And we know that schools play such a critical role in promoting student wellness. And I understand you and your team have worked extensively on school wellness programs. Could you talk more broadly about the importance of these kind of policies and more specifically about the wellness school assessment tool, what it is and why it's important? Sure. So, you know, it was really interesting way back in 2004, there was a federal regulation that kind of was written that essentially said that all public school districts, local education agencies is what they're officially called, needed to have a written school wellness policy. And it had to include information about nutrition education. It had to include nutrition standards for both the school meals and competitive foods. And it also needed to address physical activity and then sort of how they were gonna evaluate all of this. And in a way, it was an interesting strategy from a policy perspective because it didn't say what the schools had to do. It basically just said, you have to write down what you're doing with, I think the idea being, if you force people to write it down, then they're gonna have to come up with something. So we had an idea early on, and this was with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to create an assessment measure because it felt to me like this was a real opportunity to see what was happening locally all around the country since everyone was required to do this. And as a researcher, I thought it'd be great if we could score those policies and then look at what the actual effect was. So that was the thinking behind the Wellness School Assessment Tool or WellSat as we call it. And it's been you know, surprisingly uh, popular. <laughs> so we had the first version that we created. Um, we ended up putting it online in 2010 updated it once, updated it again. And currently it's really being used by districts all around the country. And what it does is it sort of helps them 
look at what their policies are in their district and compare it to what is the you know best practices, either evidence-based practices or, or sort of you know, kind of what the experts all agree are really the best practices. And then they score their policies. And I've been delighted to see how, um, how motivated school districts are to improve their scores. So I'll get emails from, uh, from food, food service directors wanting to, you know, know, like, what is my score here? And how can I make my score better? And so uh, several states around the country are um, requiring districts to use this as a way to really track their um, progress. But one of the reasons why we've had to update it is because things have gotten so much better. So way back in 2004, I mean, this was, you know, a time where there was virtually no federal oversight of competitive foods. There were, you know, vending machines everywhere. They were selling soda in schools. They were selling sports drinks in schools and lots of, um, you know, kind of unhealthy snacks. And over time, particularly with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, things have gotten so much better. And so we've continued to update it in a way sort of raising the bar so that districts can continue to try to really strive to, to provide the most healthy environment possible. That's really gratifying to see a policy have such a positive effect on people. And it, and it is important to measure things because you, you've got to have a baseline to know how you're doing and how you get better. So kudos to you all for developing that tool. That's great. Uh, I want to turn to the National School Lunch Program and some of the improvements that we've seen since the implementation of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. What are some of the noteworthy improvements in school nutrition environment since the act was implemented back in 2010? So I am a huge fan of, this, of the National School Lunch Program, and I'm also a huge fan of food food service directors. So the people who are actually in those school districts trying to balance meeting these nutrition standards, staying within budget, and keeping a pretty difficult audience of five to 18-year-olds happy with what they're being served. So I always like to acknowledge how incredibly hard of a job that is. And I've worked with, you know, many food service directors um, over the years, and invariably they are incredibly high energy, incredibly dedicated, and really determined to do the best that they can by these kids. So as I mentioned before, you know, sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, I'd say was kind of the the bottom in terms of where we were with school nutrition. I mean, it, it was bad. We went into one school, I remember in Connecticut, and I counted 13 vending machines in this high school. So literally, a child couldn't go from one class to another without passing at least one Coke machine. And there was, you know, just ice cream and chips and all kinds of stuff being sold, not just in the cafeteria, but in other vending machines in their school store, it was it was everywhere. And so um, it doesn't look anything like that anymore. And it was um, interesting to see, as I mentioned, the local wellness policies were one strategy. There were also a number of states that started to pass state laws. And I think that the um, food industry realized that the train was kind of going this way. And so when it came time for the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, I think that the advocacy, you know, organizations and the sort of public health and nutrition advocates really were in a good position to push for some very strong language, which then turned into quite strong regulations from the USDA. So big change was that you have smart, it's called smart snacks. So those are the nutrition standards for competitive foods. So those are the foods sold outside of the school meal program. 
Um, so those are really very strong. Then in terms of the, the actual meal, there were changes made sort of in all the domains that you would predict. Number one is increasing the variety of fruits and vegetables, requiring that for it to be a reimbursable school meal, the child needed to take either a fruit or a vegetable. Um, there were increases in whole grains that were sort of progressive. There were decreases in sodium, and there's kind of an interesting story there where we made definite progress, but it's been hard to kind of keep that going the way it was originally envisioned. And then uh, dairy, sort of ha having lower fat dairy is another place where I think there was a lot of big changes. And the USDA um, did a very large national study that came out, I believe in 2019 called the SNMCS, which is School Nutrition and Meal Cost Study. And they basically found that there've been significant improvements in school meals since the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act went into effect. So there's really no question um, that things have gotten better. And I think what's been challenging is that people sometimes, well, number one, people don't necessarily like change. And number two, you know, I think that there's, there's some level of can't please all the people all the time <laughs> that goes with this. So there were definitely some, you know, grumbling, there was some grumbling when these changes first went into effect. And one of the concerns was that there was more plate waste that essentially you were requiring these kids to take a fruit or a vegetable. And so people are saying they're getting thrown away. And we actually did a study. And I think this is probably the study that at the end of my career will be the one that got downloaded the most times because we did a study where we were able to really look at the percentage of plate waste before and after the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act because we were in the middle of collecting data for really a separate study at NI for NIH, but we found that there was not an increase in the percentage being thrown away. And so um, other studies have found the same thing. And so it's really, I think, brings up the point that number one, um, the kids who are used to eating the school meals, this was in a district where it was universal free meals. So they had very high participation rates. Those kids were eating the healthier foods. So that was super important. But I think it also raised the point that change does take time. And I think, you know, that those first few years were going to be hard because the changes were, you know, kind of the kids, it wasn't what the kids were used to. And it was going to take a little bit of um, getting used to it. And so I think that it's going to just get better and better as kids come into school and are eating those healthier foods from the beginning. I think that we'll see even um, more improvements in terms of the nutrition kids are getting at school. Uh, it's great to hear, you know, we're at Mission Readiness, we're big fans as well of the National School Lunch Program. And it's just, it's just so important that kids get healthy, nutritious meals at school, breakfast and lunch, ideally. And it just has such an amazing effect on kids and their ability to learn and grow up and, and lead healthy lives. So uh, glad to see you doing all that important work. Let's talk about food banks for just a minute, because I understand you've done a lot of work lately on strategies for food banks to, to improve the nutritional value of the food they distribute. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this really sort of came from my experience as a board member of the Connecticut Food Bank. I was asked to become a board member and honestly had never set foot in a food bank, didn't really know very much about them at all and thought, oh, that should be interesting. So I went and um, 
the, the first time that I got a tour of the food bank, and I, I feel like I always have to tell people was the first week of November. And the reason that's relevant is all that Halloween candy that's actually probably being sold around now. Um, guess where it shows up on November 1st, it get, it ends up at the food bank. And so all I could see was candy and soda and sugary cereals. And, you know, I was in the middle of doing all this work, trying to get stuff out of schools. And I was like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, so you can like get rid of it in, from the schools, but then let's say it's a low income family and they go to the food bank. Is it going to end up in their house that way? And so I started to really push as a board member for our food bank to have a policy. And I decided to really focus on, on sugary drinks since that's where the data is the strongest. And it was amazing how much resistance I was up against. And it became almost like a challenge. Like, how can I convince these folks that this is the right thing to do? And so we did a bunch of things. One was just educating the rest of the board about the amount of sugar in soda. So like I literally walked into a board meeting with, you know, the bottle of Coke and the sugar packets and was like, okay, who can tell me how many of these sugar packets are in this bottle of Coke? Of course, nobody could. And then part of it was sort of trying to show that this isn't actually what people want. So we did a study at that point, and I've actually done similar studies since where if you actually ask people who are using food pantries, what are the foods you're coming to get? What's important to you? They will tell you nutrition is number one, most important thing. And they're coming to get fresh produce. They're coming to get, you know, milk and meat and bread. I mean, they're coming to get real, you know, staples, groceries, like all of us want to have in our homes. They're not coming to get potato chips and, and Coke. And so I, that really helped a lot because then it didn't just feel like, you know, this sort of person coming in imposing, you know, ideas, but rather that this was really coming from the people that we were serving. So I ended up then going, instead of saying, okay, we need to just have a policy and get rid of this. I said, all right, if that's because I couldn't, I just couldn't get traction with that idea. I said, all right, well, then let's just measure what we're doing. So it seems like, that, like that's what researchers do. When we can't get anything else done, we say, well, at least we should measure it. Maybe then we can get people to make changes. So we started to assess the nutrition quality of what was going through the food bank. And, and that really began kind of a trajectory of working with food banks all over the country, trying to help them uh, track their nutrition and then showing through research that once you do that, once people can see the nutrition information, they will make changes. So um, about, uh, let's see, it was March, 2020, we released a set of nutrition standards specifically made for food banks. Um, this was a project funded by Healthy Eating Research, which is part of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And essentially we had put together a national panel of experts. We had representatives from all over the country, both researchers and people who work in food banks. And we worked for really a year to come up with a set of nutrition standards that made sense in that setting. And there were a lot of, you know, things that we really needed to keep in mind. But in the end, we have this, it's a stoplight system. It has green, yellow, red. And essentially for all of the foods that come into the food bank, it can get scored as a green, yellow, or a red. And we've since shown that once you do that, the clients who, if they can see the green, yellow, red, change what they take. The people who are working at the food pantry who are shopping at the food bank, if they can see the score, it changes what they take. 
And so it's the idea is to just show how providing that information in a really easy to understand way will shift behavior. And my hope is that this will really catch on. And, and it's been it's been really exciting because um, the CDC is interested. They're using that system with some of the communities they fund. Feeding America is interested. They have grants actually for food banks that want to do this that they can apply for to get funding to help support them. And Partnership for a Healthier America, which is another organization that is in our <laughs> in our, our field, has also been working with food banks all over the country to help them implement this. So it's it's really gotten a lot of traction. And I think benefits not just because I think the food will be healthier, but it really fights against this attitude that I came into where people felt like sort of beggars can't be choosers. And if you're coming to get free food, you should just be happy with whatever you get. And I think it's really helping people understand that when we take responsibility for feeding people who don't have enough money to buy food, we need to really take that responsibility seriously and make sure that what we're providing is going to be a positive, um, have a positive influence on their health. And so I've seen big shifts in that attitude over the years, and that's been really great. Well, that's that's an extremely elegant but simple solution, the stoplight, because it's, you know, it's quick. You can immediately identify. You don't have to read labels and try to figure out the, the carbs versus the protein. I mean, it's just a simple, easy solution. So well done. That uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm sure I'm sure it'll pick up steam because it really does seem like it would solve the issue. Well, two final questions we always ask our podcast guests. The first one, what's one habit or routine, either professional or personal, that you've developed during the COVID pandemic that you intend to keep doing even after the pandemic is over? So I actually have an answer for that one. Um, So I have always thought that I would like to be the type of person who gets up in the morning and sort of meditates for a little while to sort of you know, gather my thoughts and and prepare for the day. And I was never able to do it before the pandemic because I was always rushing around and getting ready to go out of the house. And when we all of a sudden were working from home, I found that it actually was possible to find those few minutes in the morning. And I will say that I use an app, it's called 10% Happier, was developed by Dan Harris. And I love it. I, every single morning I sit down, I have my coffee, I do my meditation and I have been able to stick with that. Now, granted, we have not gone back full time. So we'll see how I do once we're really back in the office. Um, but certainly during this time that has become a habit and I've, I've found that really helpful. Oh, that's great. We've actually had similar answers from other podcast guests about meditation or that morning time. So uh, that seems to be a common one. Second question we ask everybody, what books have you been reading lately or what books would you recommend to our listeners? So that is a good question. And I have to confess, it's been a long time since I've read like an actual book with pages. (laughs) So I um, listen to audiobooks and I also listen to podcasts. So I I think with the audiobooks, honestly, I, I have very... Um, I don't know. My taste is really looking for something fun and entertaining. I don't read super serious stuff. I spend too much time reading serious stuff for work. So I tend to listen to more popular books. The one I just finished is Leanne Moriarty, and she wrote a book called Apples Never Fall. And she also had written 
a book called Big Little Lies, which they turned into like a TV show with Reese Witherspoon. So people might be familiar with that. So that's kind of my taste when it comes to books. With podcasts, I, it's a little bit more educational. One that I listen to a lot is called The History Chicks. And it's two women who just each episode is a person from history. I just listened to the episode about Meriwether Post and you learn a whole, you know, biography of, of a woman from history. And, and that does feel educational as well as really entertaining. Oh, it's great. Well, Dr. Schwartz, thanks so much for taking the time to share details with us about the Rudd Center and the work you all do. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and about the Rudd Center? Sure. So um, we have a website. It's yukonredcenter.org. And we have a newsletter, which I would love for your listeners to subscribe to. It comes out once a month, so it's not overwhelming. And we really summarize kind of what our latest research is, what's happening in the field. And so you can sign up for our newsletter on our website. And then we also are on social media. We have Facebook and Twitter. And it would be great to have your listeners connect with us that way. Great. Dr. Schwartz of the Red Center, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you. Well, Jake, Dr. Schwartz was absolutely a great podcast guest today. The Rudd Center is doing some incredible research on, on food policy and a lot of the issues that Mission Readiness cares about very much. Yes, sir. Yeah, I found it particularly interesting how she talked about her start as a clinical psychologist and the challenges that she personally witnessed in terms of policies or lack thereof that ultimately shaped the environment that children and families live in. And so she took those experiences and through the Rudd Center is dedicating really her life to identifying and promoting evidence-based solutions to combat childhood obesity, poor diet, and weight bias. Well, the thing I tell you, the thing that impressed me the most was they're coming up with innovative solutions that actually work. I mean, between the school wellness test, the assessment tool they, they developed that has caused schools to change their behavior or even the stoplight system for food banks, just so people can come in and immediately see whether a food is healthy or maybe not so healthy. I mean, those are those are solutions to problems. It's it's not just research. It's more than that. It's something that people can actually use to make our lives better. So well done for finding Dr. Schwartz and the Red Center for our podcast. Thank you, sir. Well, as always, thanks for listening to the Mission Readiness Podcast. My co-host today was Jake Ferreira. And the show was written and produced by Jake and John Connolly. For more about Mission Readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit, visit strongnation.org. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, thank you for supporting our work at Mission Readiness to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.